0: Welcome back to the Planet Jesus Podcast. This is Episode 7, Cain and Abel. The research that went into Episode 6, Fishing for Fools on the Euphrates, caused me to conclude that if we would be our brother's keeper, the manipulation and deception that permeates politics and business would be eliminated. Of course, everyone would have to sign up for the program. I stated last week that this week's podcast would focus on Cain and Abel. It is an archetypal story, and as such, it is timeless, and allows us to relate to reoccurring events in history and the present. Jesus pulled from the story, which we will review, and did it in creative ways to make it relevant to those who heard him. I hope to do the same. I will read a lot of verses, but not a fraction of what could be read. After my research this week, I am convinced that God considers keeping your brother the central act of doing well. Keeping is manifested in a myriad of ways, from providing food and shelter to forgiving those who've wronged you. Please note that through this podcast, I will use the term brother only because the controlling motif is about two brothers, but it applies to every person-to-person interaction or relationship. So with that introduction, let's dive in. A little background to Cain and Abel. Uh, There is a lot going on in Genesis 1 through 4, and really through all the way through chapter 11. Uh, It cannot be addressed in this one short podcast, but if you get this big picture, that the struggles depicted in the first 11 chapters are really between the serpent and humanity those parts of humanity that intend to be faithful to God. There is this struggle between the serpent and the first couple, between Cain and Abel, between Lamech and the young man, between Noah and his peers, between Noah and his son, between those at the Tower of Babel and God. These are all pointing to a battle of competing visions of reality. The reality of God and those who want to trust and live by him, and the reality of the serpent, and those who follow him. The winner of the battle gets to have dominion over the world. Let's read Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We know from the words of God here to the serpent that the hope of restored glory for the woman and her husband would come from her offspring. It is no wonder that we see in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 that Eve gets on with her task and has a son, Cain. And then in verse 2, she has another son and names him Abel. I'm going to do some imagining for a minute. Eve must have been elated while she raised Cain. I know you've been told raising Cain is a bad thing, but not in this case. After all, she was his mother. She would sing songs to him about his destiny to set things right and told him he had all the skills and abilities to restore their glory. See, that's the promise. Embedded in the curse to the serpent was a promise that the seed of the woman would have victory over him. The dinner table conversation was about dominion, Cain's. You see, the firstborn in that culture got all the goodies. Poor, skinny, little, wispy Abel sits in the corner, hearing all that his brother will accomplish, all the destiny his brother will fulfill. But the book of Genesis is about to set forth a pattern of role reversal relative to older and younger brothers. It starts with Cain and Abel, but continues with Isaac the younger, who is accepted over Ishmael. Jacob chosen over his brother Esau, and Joseph over his ten older brothers. One thing we should see is that God is not interested in perpetuating privilege in birth order or privilege of any human over another in any context. According to 1 Samuel 16:7, when David is chosen over his eight older brothers, Samuel says, quote, "...the Lord sees not as man sees." Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, End quote. I think Cain was a religious man. I don't think he had a perceptible flaw in his character. He was probably head of the neighborhood watch group, paid tithes, volunteered on Sundays, worked as a greeter or maybe a contributor with his time and money to humanitarian outreaches like UNICEF. He was a religious man. Okay. That was just a little background into Cain and Abel. Mostly Cain, uh, but we know more about him. Abel doesn't say anything or live long. That's kind of the paradox in the way God does things. So what's in a name? Uh, We know that names have meaning. I've always liked mine. It means bright, shining fame. That's a great meaning. My father's name is Harvey, which means battle-worthy. That's not bad. But other names like Gideon mean... Uh, stump for a hand, or Oliver means bald. You see what I mean? Uh, you want to be careful what kind of name you've got. Uh, with that in mind, let's read Genesis 4-1 and how Adam and Eve named their children. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The transliteration of Cain and the word gotten also sometimes translated created in this verse, reflect the wordplay the authors intend. Notice the transliteration of Cain is Q-A-Y-I-N, and of gotten or created is Q-A-N-A-H, making the sound Cain and Cana. This is the only time that the word Cana, translated in the ESV gotten and means to get, but translated, created elsewhere in the scripture. This is the only passage in the Bible where a human is the subject of this verb. All other instances refer to God. So what could the author be implying in this? According to Ian Provan in his book, Seriously Dangerous Religion, and also in his book, Discovering Genesis, Cain represents the tendency in humanity to self-divinization. Cain embodies the attitude of Adam and Eve when they were deceived by the serpent. Remember what the serpent said in chapter 3, verse 5? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree, that it was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, the author's wordplay between Cain's name and the word create means to convey that Eve claims to be a co-creator with God in the birth of Cain. According to Provan, there is a serious blurring of the lines between the role of creator and the role of creation. He believes this text is asking the question, Who is responsible for human life? And the text is also answering that Eve thinks she is. That she is a co-creator of human life. She has achieved what she has grasped for in the garden with the serpent. To be like God. We will see later that her attitude changes. For now, connect the name of Cain with the insatiable desire in humankind to grasp for more. I don't want to pounce too hard on our species. We were created in the image of God and we're endowed with some remarkable abilities. It is not unthinkable that our gifts for art, music, architecture, athletics, and business would be awed by others and eventually ourselves. In verse two, the story continues with the birth of the second son, Abel. It is written, And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. As lofty, And exalted, as the name of Cain implies, the name Abel conveys the opposite. Abel, according to Bible dictionaries, means breath or transitoriness or vanity. It conveys those meanings. Abel represents the reality of humanity's mortality. According to Provan, he reflects the futility of endeavors, the ephemeral and the fleeting, These meanings are bound up in Abel's name. As we consider the transitoriness of our species, which is obvious on the individual level, but a little less when we look at it aggregately, look at the empires. When they are in their full power, they seem permanent, but they have all crumbled. The greatest empires of the past are ruins that tourists visit today. What feels like permanence to us today will be recognized as ephemeral to our descendants. It's like the impressive buildings the disciples point out to Jesus in Matthew 24, 1, the great buildings of the temple. They had a majesty, a permanence, but Jesus said, the time is coming when not one stone will be left upon another. We know what the disciples didn't, that the temple was not permanent. Let me insert here that I do not see this cycle of empires rising and falling to be irreparable. That is my main point, that brotherly love has the power to stop the decay of society. Just keep that in mind. Notice that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. These two men were actually continuing the works assigned by God to their father Adam before his expulsion from the garden. Remember God's command to Adam? He put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That's chapter 2, verse 15. His sons were exercising dominion. They were attempting to win out over the serpent. See, the question now, following the expulsion, is who is going to have dominion, the serpent and his seed or the woman and her seed? Cain and Abel are showing their intention to be the promised seed that would, as Stephen Dempster claims, in his work, Dominion and Dynasty, that the human family hoped for someone to come along and, quote, restore the lost dominion of the old creation to its rightful heirs, end quote. This was Eve's hope for Cain. Both Cain and Abel seemed to be allies with each other and God to fulfill this initial commission, to have dominion and care for creation. So based on his name, We have a literary suggestion that Cain will end up like his parents, desiring more than he should to be like God, grasping to get along on his own terms. And we have Abel, whose name foreshadows a short and provisional life, wispy and weak and temporary. Let's read on Genesis uh, chapter 4, verses uh, 3 through 5. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. It's hard to know how Cain knew his sacrifice was not accepted and how Abel's was. I've seen artists' depictions of fire coming down and consuming Abel's sacrifice while Cain sat untouched, like that odd numbered kid left against the chain-link fence after the teams were chosen. Ask me how I know about that. I prefer to think, however, that it wasn't phenomenal in nature, and not anything like noticing that Joneses got a new car or went on a nice vacation like those times we sit there and watch their Facebook posts and think, what am I doing wrong? Specifically, when we see their hashtag blessed, hashtag favor of God, hashtag living right tags on Instagram, it was not obvious. It wasn't those things. But something struck Cain that his offering wasn't accepted. Jesus may give some insight, but we'll get to that presently. It is possible that Cain saw in Abel the ideal— Jordan Peterson deals with this in his YouTube lecture, Biblical Series, Episode 5, Cain and Abel, The Hostile Brothers. Here's what he said referring to the twisted admiration that Cain may have felt for Abel. Quote, it's so uncommon for expressions of admiration and gratitude to manifest themselves in any public communication of any sort, newspapers, TV, YouTube, Twitter, it's almost always undermining and backbiting and criticism and very often directed to people who have often done little else but bring good things into the world for other people. And that's part of why this is such a profound story. He's a pretty good guy. Everyone knows that he deserves his good fortune, all the more reason to hate him, End quote. Let's imagine for a minute. I wonder if Abel had a past. Was We don't know, right? So let's, we can use our imagination. Maybe he was a drug addict, in and out of rehab, dropped out of college, spent his inheritance on women and booze, and then had a change of heart. Somewhere along the line, God talked to him and he redirected his orientation to God. Or maybe not. Maybe he grew up on the east side of Eden Baptist Church, went to Sunday school, church camp, and Bible college. Either way, The text claims he brought the choicest sacrifice. He didn't skimp, and it reflected in some way. The author isn't explicit. But the quality of his sacrifice somehow reflected a trusting relationship with God. Let's continue to imagine. Cain, while Abel was off uh, transferring his wealth to bartenders and pimps, Stayed faithful in the east side of Eden Baptist Church. Went to Sunday school, church camp, and Bible college. Watched after Adam's garden and stayed faithful to the family. Or maybe not. He could have been a brooding miscreant all his life. Harassing his brother and limiting himself to a perfunctory acknowledgement of God. Thank you for letting me imagine. I just want us to realize that we do not know any other background. That's why this story is so paradigmatic and applicable to so many relationships. But I do not think my imaginings are too far off. Just quickly thinking about it, I can remember a few times that Jesus may have used the story of Cain and Abel as a backdrop. The first is Matthew, the fifth chapter, during his Sermon on the Mount. The second in Matthew 18 on forgiving your brother and in Luke 15 in his story about the prodigal son. I'll dig into each of the first two stories later in the podcast, but the prodigal son story should be reviewed now. Reading in Luke 15, verse 11, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. If you were a Jew hearing Jesus say these things, you're thinking, of course, of course the man had two sons. They all have two sons. Without the two sons, we don't have conflict. There is no drama. Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, it's the same drama in Genesis. It's being played out in the lives of those ancients. It was being played out in the time of Jesus, and it continues to be played out today. His parable had meaning and impact because the conditions depicted were played out often. Okay, so the young man runs out of money. Let's continue reading in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. Look at this young man. He has now come to his senses and he wants to offer himself to his father as a servant to pay for his sins. Like Abel, he's going to make a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that appears from the heart. Let's continue. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. First, no respectable Jewish father would run to his errant wayward son. It was culturally unacceptable. Look at the wholehearted compassion, however, of the father to the son. This was a radical rethinking of the way fathers and sons, and it was Jesus' radical way of saying, God is not like you have thought he was. And verse 21 continues, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring and kill the fatted calf and let us eat and celebrate. See, the father dismisses the son's plan for sacrifice, the plan to indenture himself to the father's service. Instead, the father makes a sacrifice himself. The father kills the fatted calf. Abel offered the fat portions of his flock and here the father replaces the son's sacrifice with the fat of his herd. Verse 24 continues. The father says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. It's interesting that the father's younger son, like Abel, was considered dead. Now, in the verse 25... His older son was in the field. As we read on in Genesis 4, we will notice that Cain is also in the field when he murders his brother Abel. Let's continue reading in verse 25. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. The father always seems to entreat. He was entreating Cain, and now he's entreating the older brother. "'Look, these many years I have served you,' he said to his father. "'And I never disobeyed your commandment. "'Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends.' Notice the profound similarities between Cain's response towards his brother and the older brother of the prodigal. Righteous indignation isn't so righteous. It's possible that psychologically the older brother wanted to riot and have uncommitted sex. Listen, don't get too fixated on these scenarios. Like Jordan Peterson's consideration of an ideal Abel that Cain resented because he couldn't match him or what I posit in the prodigal story. The point is, these archetypal stories have the flexibility to fit many storylines, even yours and mine. Remember, in some of the recent episodes, I said that when we read these biblical stories, we're not reading only about what happened, but about what's happening. It's, it's about the life that we all live and have lived. Notice that when Cain's sacrifice was rejected, he became angry, like the older brother. According to Provan, this gives us a little insight into the religion of Cain, which was not unlike the religions of the ancient Near East and later Greco-Roman versions. That is, a quid pro quo religion. I do this and God does that. Like Aladdin's genie, I will grant you three wishes and ixnay on the wishing for more wishes. That's uh, Robin Williams in Aladdin. Cain is upset because his sacrifice was not received. The authors don't say why, although Cain gives some of the fruits of the soil when compared to the elaboration of Abel's offering of the fat portions or the choicest cuts. Maybe it was half-hearted. By the way, just as a side note, regarding sacrifice, it's a sensitive issue about blood sacrifice and the God of the Old Testament so bloody, blah, 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 but this was how they rendered sacrifice to God, but God is never depicted, like in the pagan stories, like in the Epic of Gilgamesh, he's never depicted as starving for these sacrifices. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the gods are deprived of the sacrifices during the flood And they're swarming like flies around the sacrifice. In comparison, Genesis records that God smelled the aroma of the sacrifice that Noah offered up. Many of the Hebrew prophets even claimed that God was not interested in sacrifices at all. That he was interested in their actions, in their heart. This quid pro quo religious perspective is detailed in Rob Bell's The Gods Are Not Angry talk. See the YouTube link in the show notes. The history of religious perspective of God, or the gods, is that he or they are ticked off and capricious, and if you don't bring the correct sacrifice, then the crops will fail, wombs will close, and churches won't grow. For example, if you bring a chicken this year and have a bad harvest, then you've got to up the ante. The following year, you slay a goat, but that doesn't work either. Global warming or the global recession, that doesn't let up. So you offer a bull. That's a no-go. The recession is now a depression, and the average temperature is now two degrees warmer. The religious, after the order of Cain, who believe in a transactional religion, they start offering their children, and that's where it goes. God is not angry. Cain didn't realize that God was not like this. God will not be controlled through ritual. Sacrifice will not cause God to turn a blind eye to moral evil. But on the other hand, he is quick, like the father of the prodigal, to run towards his wayward children and embrace them. This thought of Cain's anger at the sacrifice reminded me of Jesus' words about anger in what is called the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it is said to those of old, You shall do no murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Notice the spiral of escalation. Jesus sees that murder is the final destination on a road that begins with anger, crosses over to insults, and then ends in disdain or worse, indifference. Verse 23, he continues, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift therefore before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Wow! Jesus is saying that not even offerings to God should take precedence over reconciliation with a brother. Notice Jesus believed that it was during the context of worship that self-reflection and memory of alienation or separation from a brother may come to the supplicant's mind. Maybe that happened with Cain. Maybe his conversation with God was like many of ours. Those conversations we experience that are that internal struggle over not being offended or not taking offense or not allowing some hurt feeling to become a root of bitterness that ends up destroying ourselves and all those around us. Let's continue. Verse 25, Jesus says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. If we are unmoved towards our brother, when we know that they have aught against us or we have aught against them, we are saying yes to a lifetime of fear alienation and exile that's what cain got in cain's case god turned him over to the land and the inhabitants of nod now let's look at how god tries to back cain off the ledge of anger start reading again in genesis chapter 4 verse 6 the lord said to cain why are you angry and why has your face fallen if you do well will you not be accepted And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Cain is angry because of some sense of right that he feels has been violated, or his ego is bruised, or something. We may understand that God isn't going to give divine favor based on ritual, but Cain thought he did, and now his anger is retrospective, As one commentator put it, Cain's anger was a reflection of what his heart truly felt when he made the sacrifice. But notice what God says to try to correct his thinking. If you do well, will you not be accepted? The authors of Genesis seem to believe that God is more concerned about doing what is right than making sacrifices. Something Jesus seemed to believe in his thoughts on anger toward the brother that we just covered. I think it's dangerous to be too specific regarding what the authors meant by do well. It seems purposely ambiguous so that it could fit in so many different situations. But in light of the thoughts of Jesus, and assuming that this story is archetypal, we may imagine that doing well here is loving your brother. John, in his first epistle, chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, drives home this point. John seems to be putting his readers in the role of Abel, but instead of dying, they're passed to life because of love. See, as I think Peterson claimed in his presentation, that none of us is 100% Cain or 100% Abel. It's upon conversion and following the pattern of Christ that we take on more of that love, that life is possible. He goes on to say, Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus is exemplar for how to love our brother. And I would say that while we were enemies, Jesus died for us, so this is how we would behave towards our enemies— We would die and give ourselves for them. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. John is saying that love is more than a feeling. It is expressed in action that keeps our brother alive. Let's finish up. Genesis chapter 4 verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is the thought as I was preparing the last episode that made me want to explore this story further. What would the world look like if we lived lives that actively sought our brother's best interests? Verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. See, Abel's blood was crying out as we would expect for justice. There was a few ways that murder could be satisfied. First, in the ancient Near East, not so much in Israel, you could pay the family for the loss. Second, you could be exiled from your home city and flee to a city of refuge or some other city. Change your name and your Facebook profile and move on. Third, you could be killed. That is, the blood of the murderer is shed by the revenger of blood. The guy who's like the best friend or cousin or brother of the guy that you killed. And he would come after you and kill you. Uh, Moses called for the death of the murderer in order to cleanse the land from the stain of bloodshed. There was a fourth way... Uh, That was only hinted at in the Hebrew Scriptures, but uh, brought to full disclosure in the words of Jesus, and that is forgiveness. To illustrate that hint, notice the story of Absalom and Amnon, the sons of David. Absalom kills Amnon, and many of us would say justifiably, and then David exiles him. Many leaders in David's company wanted Absalom returned to his previous status within the family. So a ruse was set up to get David to agree. Let's pick up on this reading and recognize how this ruse actually revealed to David the heart of God. 2 Samuel 14, 4. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage to him and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered him, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant, talking about herself, had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in a field. Uh, Notice that they quarreled in a field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. The king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. She prevailed on him further. Verse 11 says, Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, so now he's swearing, Not one hair on your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please, let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. And he said, Speak. I don't know. I'm probably getting frustrated myself. Verse 13. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Notice the interesting words of the woman of Tekoa. God will not take away life and devises a means for the banished to no longer remain an outcast. This is option four, forgiveness, the one that Jesus promoted. Miroslav Volf, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, writes, quote, I hope the core of the Christian faith lies in the persuasion that the others need not be perceived as innocent in order to be loved but ought to be embraced even when they are perceived as wrongdoers in the love your enemies mandate from Christ. There is no other conclusion. Wolf uses the phrase pervasive non-innocence to express our common guilt and push us, as God attempted to do with Cain, to love our brother. Let's continue reading. Genesis 4 verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Notice that the energy to maintain life is dissipated by fear. He's now a vagabond, a fugitive, a wanderer. The ground isn't going to give as easily as it had once for Cain. All of his energy is now being dissipated. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. I think it's ironic that Cain cries for justice against his future pursuers and potential killers. He didn't have that for his brother. Verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Look at this. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. I wish everyone could see the character of God, how he protects Cain from harm, The word mark is used in Genesis 1.14, Genesis 9.13, Genesis 17.11. And in each of those places, they represented the signs that God would show in the rainbow, in the created stars and sun and moon, and in the covenant with Abraham, that he was going to be there and govern the world and that he was making a promise. This, This mark was a promise. Here's the point of the author of Genesis, that God is making a promise to Cain. Cain could count on God like we can count on the seasons and the rainbow and the covenant Abraham made with him. We might think Cain doesn't deserve protection, but God shows mercy. Verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain's recorded lineage ends with the story of Lamech. There are a lot of interesting things we could point out from Genesis 17 till the mention of Lamech, but time prevents. We catch up on the story in verse 23, where Lamech speaks to his wives. Verse 23 says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. What an arrogant putz. Speaking of himself in the third person. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Notice that Cain killed Abel and denied it. Am I my brother's keeper? Lamech freely admits it and feels justified. Notice the escalating violence. Lamech even has the audacity to multiply the judgment of any would-be revenger of blood by saying that if Cain is revenged seven times, then he would have be revenged 70 times seven. I think it's interesting that when Jesus was teaching on forgiveness in Matthew 18, his disciples asked him, "'Lord, how often, if my brother sins against me, how many often should I forgive him? Till seven times?' And I'm sure they thought they were being generous by saying that. But Jesus said to them, I say not unto you until seven times, but until 70 times seven. You notice the connection there? As citizens of planet Jesus, we are not to long for escalating violence and retribution like Lamech 70 by seven, but to forgive to that same degree. Lamech was calling for utter destruction and retribution, and Jesus was calling for complete forgiveness. One last loose end I want to tie up. That is, Eve started out thinking of herself as co-creator with God. The loss of Abel at the hands of her other son must have humbled her. In Genesis 4.25, it reads, She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Eve now recognizes the act of God in her having another son. God is the subject of the action, and with this son her hope rises, because it was at that time people began to call on the Lord. The seed of the woman as weak and wispy as it seems, will be victorious over the serpent and all those who align with its ways. I hope I was able to convey that the central hope of the human race is brotherly love. Men and women of all nations, races, and languages are to dwell together in unity. We heard that God chose to exile Cain instead of killing him, as Moses commanded to be done. David chose to follow God's lead and exile his son, Absalom, but then realized that there was an alternative to separation, that a plan could be devised that would allow the estranged to come home through forgiveness. And we read that Jesus believed reconciliation and forgiveness was central to the heart of the Father and should be our desire as well going so far as to claim that when we have ought against our brother, we should leave the presence of God and reconcile with Him. Finally, we learned that non-innocence is a central truism for our species, that all have done wrong. Sometimes as perpetrators, and sometimes as victims, and sometimes as victims who become perpetrators, this understanding will allow us to embrace back into community, all who desire re-entry. And let that be our heart. Thank you for listening. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and you could have chosen any. But I sincerely appreciate your investment of time into mine. The show notes for this and all episodes and other links to source material can be found on my website at planetjesus.net. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate it, and share it with a friend. Thanks again.